yourself deception its nature evils and remedy by Reverend Jacob Helvenstein published by the American Tract Society preface this little volume is affectionately commended to the serious perusal of everyone bound to eternity and especially of every professor of religion it addresses them on a subject of infinite moment involving their highest interest both for this world and the next the writer would not excite the least unnecessary distrust or pain in a single bosom he is well aware that there is a weak as well as a strong faith that there are babes as well as fathers in christ the day of small things is not to be despised but cherished and strengthened yet it is better that the truth be faithfully exhibited even though it should excite a momentary pang in the fearful than to suffer multitudes who are trusting to a refuge of lies to live and die unwarned listener lay not this work aside until the great subject of which it treats is settled as you will wish it had been when your head is laid on the pillow of death and the realities of eternity open upon your vision contents chapter 1 the nature and forms of self-deception chapter 2 the danger of self-deception chapter 3 the consequences of self-deception chapter 4 self-deception liable to prove permanent chapter 5 the remedy for self-deception and the conclusion chapter 1 Self-deception may be distinguished from hypocrisy. The former consists in a wrong judgment of our character, the latter in assuming one which we are conscious we do not possess, with a view of imposing upon our fellow men and accomplishing some sinister design. With such gross dissimulation, the listener may not be chargeable. The very name of hypocrite may be regarded by him with abhorrence. All his profession may be characterized by the utmost sincerity. But though he may not intentionally deceive others, he may fatally deceive himself. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs fourteen twelve. Sincerity affords no conclusive evidence of piety. A man may be sincere in the belief of error as well as in the belief of truth. Sincere in doing wrong as well as in doing right. Paul verily thought that he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In the church of God there have ever been two classes of false professors. The one includes those who in the common acceptation of the term are hypocrites. In the scriptures the term hypocrite seems to possess a meaning somewhat different from that which is usually attached to it. Here it is applied not simply to the dissembler or the man who assumes a character which he knows does not belong to him, but to the false professor. Hence we find it appropriated to the Pharisees who as a people appear to have been remarkably sincere while at the same time they were charged with being full of all uncleanness Matthew 23 to this sect Saul of Tarsus belonged and so devoted was he to the religion he professed that he regarded himself as touching the righteousness of the law blameless
In the Church of God there have ever been two classes of professors. The one includes those who in the common acceptation of the term are hypocrites, those who, while they profess piety, are conscious they do not possess it. The other, those who view themselves as in the state of grace when in fact they are in a state of nature, of sin and condemnation. Nothing is more common and certainly nothing more fatal than self-deception. The number who are ruined by false views of religion is doubtless great, even when compared with those who perish in avowed infidelity or careless indifference. And as it is an act of kindness, not less than an imperious duty to expose the delusions into which our fellow men are liable to fall, we shall here endeavor to point out some of the modes in which the soul may be deceived in the judgment it forms of its spiritual state and eternal prospects. Number one, many are deceived by mistaking the mere dictates of the understanding for the gracious affections of the heart. This class of persons may be distinguished by the correctness of their sentiments and their opposition to error. Early instructed in the principles of Christianity, their minds have become stored with evangelical truth, and they will, perhaps, even contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. The doctrines of entire depravity, of a vicarious atonement, of justification by faith, of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and of an eternal state of retribution, have their unqualified assent, and constitute most essential articles in their creed. It may be that their speculative acquaintance with these doctrines is superior to that of many humble believers, and instances are not lacking in which unsanctified men have written in defense of those doctrines with great ability and effect. Now, it is easy to conceive how such persons may mistake a mere intellectual conviction of the truth for holiness of heart, especially if with an orthodox creed there be connected morality of life and a strict attention to the forms of godliness. The truth, however, may be seen and yet not loved. The head may be filled with light while the heart remains chilled with spiritual death. Such is the case with the fallen angels. They both know and believe the truth. There may be also an intellectual approbation of the truth where its sanctifying power is wholly unknown. The manifestation which God has made of himself in creation is sometimes called forth expressions of the highest admiration, while the heart has shown itself to be in a state of decided enmity against his character. It is related of a lecturer on philosophy that in discoursing on the wisdom and power of God as displayed in the immensity of creation, he with his audience was wrought up in a rapture of apparent devotion, and yet in less than an hour's time after leaving the room, he was heard to curse and swear, as was his usual manner of conversation. Another common defect in that class of persons whose delusion we are now exposing is that while they see the truth, they are not affected by it. It is contemplated simply in the abstract without any reference to its bearing upon themselves. Theology is studied as a science, and the head becomes filled with ideas, while the affections remain cold and unmoved. They know that God is a being of infinite perfection, but do not love Him. That sin is an infinite evil, but do not hate it. 
that Christ is supremely glorious, but do not esteem him, that there is a heaven, but are not allured by it, a hell, but do not fear it. True religion respects not simply the understanding, but the heart. It requires love as well as light, feeling, deep, ardent feeling. John the Baptist was a burning and shining light. To shine is not enough, a glowworm will do so. To burn is not enough, a firebrand will do so. Light without heat does but little good, and heat without light does much harm. Give me those Christians who are burning lamps as well as shining lights. Further, the truth may be known and yet not obeyed. It is one thing to know that repentance is a duty, another to exercise repentance. One thing to know that faith in Christ is indispensable, another actually to confide in Him as a hope of the lost. One thing to know that men ought always to pray, another to stir up ourselves to take hold on God. Religion is not mere speculation, it is obedience. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Number 2. Humanity is often mistaken for Christian benevolence. Total as is the apostasy of man, there still remains in him certain feelings of kindness and sympathy, which may attach to him a high degree of amiableness, and which answer important purposes in the present state of existence. To be without natural affection is represented by the apostle as a very climax of human depravity. Destitute as man is of love to God, there is notwithstanding a strong tendency in his nature to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice, to pity the miserable and to relieve the needy. This sympathetic feeling is often regarded as proof of moral goodness when, in fact, it may exist where there is an entire alienation from God. The feeling is simply constitutional or instinctive. It exists in irrational animals as well as in man. The former, it is well known, are often deeply affected in view of their suffering offspring, and to preserve them will even sacrifice themselves. Nothing is more common than for persons to commiserate the temporal calamities of others while they manifest the most reckless disregard to their spiritual interests. We have seen the fond mother excited with intense emotion at the sight of an afflicted child, while that mother had no heart to feel for the soul of her offspring, exposed to eternal death, or to offer up one prayer to God for its redemption. We have seen denominated philanthropists prompt in lending their aid for the amelioration of human suffering, and yet not merely indifferent to the spiritual condition of the world, but actually hostile to that very gospel, which constitutes the only balm for the woes which sin is entailed upon our race. Even the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Number three, others are deceived by substituting mere animal excitement for holy emotion. All our mental exercises produce more or less effect upon the body or the natural affections. 
It is not to be wondered at, therefore, that high religious emotions should sometimes overpower the animal frame. When Daniel had a view of the glory of Christ, there remained no strength in him. And John, speaking of a similar manifestation, says, When I saw him I fell at his feet as dead. Such affections, however, afford no evidence either of the genuineness or the spuriousness of our religion. They are merely natural effects, evincing indeed a high degree of mental excitement, without determining whether that excitement be produced by the agency of the spirit or whether it be a fire of our own kindling. No dependence, therefore, can be placed upon such appearances themselves as a test of our own piety or the piety of others. Men may be melted to tears, groan in anguish, tremble with fear, or be transported with joy while the natural sympathies merely are excited and the heart remains unchanged. Number 4. Remorse is often mistaken for repentance. Remorse is that mental pain or anguish which is produced by a sense of guilt. This is widely different from true repentance, nor is there any necessary connection between the two. Cain, Pharaoh, Belshazzar, Judas, and thousands more whose sins found them out, and who were made to tremble in view of their consequences, remained entire strangers to the tenderness of contrition. Perhaps the time was when the reader like Gallio cared for none of these things. The subject of religion, if not treated with open contempt, was at least treated with criminal indifference. Instead of asking, What must I do to be saved? your incessant inquiry was, What shall I eat? What shall I drink? Or wherewithal shall I be clothed? It is not so now. Your slumber has been broken. Light has been reflected upon your path. Sin has revived. The world has lost its charms, and the salvation of the soul appears as the one thing needful. This change is certainly desirable. The sinner must be convicted before he can be converted, and yet no degree of conviction is evidence of conversion. The understanding may be enlightened, and yet the heart maintain its rebellion. Conscience may be aroused, and yet not pacified by the blood of sprinkling. Sin may be revealed, and yet not renounced. Obligation may be felt, and yet resisted. Conviction produces no change of character. It is light, but not holiness. It makes a sinner feel that he is lost, but does not necessarily secure his salvation. In the judgment of the great day, men will be overwhelmed with conviction, but there will be no repentance. In hell there will be conviction, deep and eternal conviction, but there will be no contrition, no pardon, no hope. Number five, many confound selfish with holy affections. It is not enough that the affections be moved on the subject of religion. They must be moved aright. It is not the degree of feeling we possess that determines our character, but the nature of that feeling. 
under a conviction of the immense value of the soul and the fearful consequences of impenitence, the mind may be burdened with solicitude while sin still maintain its sway. Let me die, said Balaam, the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Unregenerate men may be as much excited on the subject of religion as true Christians, but the nature of the excitement differs essentially. The Israelites at the Red Sea appeared greatly affected with gratitude to God for their deliverance, but they soon forgot His works and rebelled against His dispensations. While the Savior was upon earth, going about doing good, many followed Him for a time, not from a regard to His person and doctrine, but for the loaves and fishes. We are far from intimating that men should have no respect to the recompense of reward, but we maintain that God must be the supreme object of our affection and that he must be loved not simply for the favors he has conferred upon us, but for his own intrinsic excellency. If you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even publicans the same? An important distinction has been made between self-love and selfishness. The former consists in a proper regard to our own happiness. This principle is implanted in man by the Creator Himself, and its operation is consistent with a high degree of holiness. Selfishness is the inordinate love of our personal happiness regardless both of the glory of God and the interests of our fellow beings. This constitutes the very essence of sin, and, of course, no degree in which it is exercised, nor any modification it may assume, can afford evidence of a holy character. Men may be as supremely selfish in religion as they are in the world. Number 6. Others are deceived by taking reformation for regeneration. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, will indeed bring forth good things. His character will be determined by his conduct. The heart is no better than the life. If the fountain be pure, the streams will be so too. In vain, however, do we attempt to cleanse the streams while the fountain remains corrupt. Such was the case with the Pharisees. Our Savior appropriately compares them with whited sepulchres, which, however beautiful they may be without, are within full of all uncleanness. It is no uncommon thing for one form of sin to be exchanged for another. A man may abandon a course of open profligacy only to settle down upon a system of self-righteousness. We read of those who turn to the Lord faintedly, but not with a whole heart. Nothing short of a radical change can constitute us Christians. Man by nature is not partially, but entirely depraved. It is not enough, therefore, to do better. This would suppose the existence of some previous good, whereas regeneration is the beginning of holiness. The change, moreover, respects not merely the life, but the heart. It does not consist in improving any principle of holiness already existing, but in exercising the first holy affection. In the present day of reforms, peculiar caution is necessary, lest a mere renunciation of certain vices be substituted for the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The temperance cause has done much to modify human conduct as well as to ameliorate human misery. 
it is often, too, proved a pioneer to religion. We can hardly bid it Godspeed and can most earnestly pray for its final triumph, and yet it must not be concealed that to become sober is no proof that we have become Christians. Number seven, the form of godliness is often assumed where its power is absent. By the form we understand the observance of the mere externals of religion. By the power, the practical influence of religion upon the heart and the life. Dominion over sin, a sense of pardon, communion with God, the spirit of prayer, patience under suffering, victory over death, and the joyful hope of a blessed immortality. Now, though the power of religion can hardly exist without the form, the form may and often does exist without the power. Profession is not possession. The picture of a man is not a man. It may have a strong resemblance, but it lacks the most essential part, vitality. We may have a name to live and yet be spiritually dead, may call Jesus Lord and yet practically disregard his authority may sing with a lip, and yet make no melody in the heart, may bow the knee to God in prayer, and yet never prostrate ourselves before Him in spirit, may appear among the guests at the Lord's Supper, and yet instead of being clad with a wedding garment, come with a dress of our own. No class of men were ever more regular in their observance of the rites and ceremonies of religion than the Pharisees. They fasted twice in the week and gave tithes of all that they possessed. They made broad their phylacteries and enlarged the borders of their garments, and yet all of their external sanctity was but a cloak to hide the deep depravity of the heart. Other motives and those derived from the influence of the gospel may secure attention to the forms of religion early education, a regard to their standing in society, or the goadings of an awakened conscience have induced multitudes to abound in such observances when the heart has been far from God. Mr. Whitfield, in speaking of a state previous to his conversion, remarks, When I was sixteen years of age, I began to fast twice a week for thirty-six hours together prayed many times a day, received the sacrament every Lord's Day, fasting myself almost to death all the forty days of Lent, during which I made it a point of duty never to go less than three times a day to public worship, besides seven times a day to my private prayers, yet I knew no more that I was to be born again in God, born a new creature in Christ Jesus, than if I had never been born at all. Number 8. Gifts are often mistaken for graces. Many have regarded themselves as eminent Christians from the circumstances of their being fluent in prayer, talented in conversation, eloquent in address, or distinguished for their attainments in biblical knowledge. The most splendid talents, however, may be connected with an unsanctified heart. Saul had the spirit of prophecy, and Judas probably wrought miracles. 
The language of the apostle clearly implies that a man may speak with the tongue of men and angels, may have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, may have all faith, so that he can remove mountains, may bestow all his goods to feed the poor and give his body to be burned, and yet be destitute of that charity without which all our attainments and performances are but is sounding brass and a tingling cymbal. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-2-3 Men may be endowed with talents by which they may be rendered highly useful to others while they become castaways themselves. They may preach the gospel with discrimination and even with success while that gospel exerts no sanctifying influence upon their own hearts. They may guide others to heaven and in the end be excluded themselves. There were builders of the ark whose floating corpses were sunk beneath it when it rose upon the bosom of the flood. There were donors of the tabernacle who were as lepers thrust beyond the camp or as blasphemers stoned without relief. There were artificers of the temple who never there left their offerings and never there worshipped God. Number nine, sectarian attachment and party zeal are often mistaken for Christian devotedness. The Pharisees, with all their aversion to true piety, compass the land to make one proselyte. The zeal of papists in the propagation of error has often exceeded that of Protestants in the propagation of truth. There are sects noted for their fanaticism and delusion, whose efforts to gain converts could hardly be surpassed by the most devoted and self-denying Christians. And if this author lived in the 20th century, in our day he may witness the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Those who are strangers to piety may no doubt be as full of zeal as those who are under its influence, while the motives by which they are governed may differ essentially. It is possible for men to preach, to write, to pray, and to suffer for what they deem the cause of truth, when in fact they are influenced by no higher aim than a desire to promote the interests of a party. With all their apparent devotedness, they may look with indifference upon the evident good effected in other branches of Zion. Instead of rejoicing in the success of other evangelical denominations, it may give them pain. While a revival of religion among themselves may be extolled as a wonderful work of God, the same favorable appearances exhibited among Christians of a different name may beget feelings of envy and jealousy. Will the listener here pause and carefully inquire on what ground he is resting his hope of future happiness? Beware of trusting to a refuge of lies. Dig deep and lay the foundation low. The day of trial is hastening on, and every fabric not built upon the rock must totter and fall. All is not gold that glitters. There may be the appearance of piety where there is not the reality. Rest then upon nothing that will not bear examination, and that will not endure the coming storm. It is not enough that you have a hope. See that you have a good hope through grace. Chapter 2, The Danger of Self-Deception In the former chapter, we pointed out some of the innumerable methods of self-deception. In the present, we propose to show our extreme liability to the evil. Number 1. We are liable to self-deception from the state of our own hearts. These are deceitful above all things. 
There is no knowledge of more importance, and yet none more difficult to acquire, than the knowledge of ourselves. The greatest obstacle to its attainment lies in the natural pride and treachery of the heart. We are prone to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, to regard our character with complacency, and to put the most favorable construction upon our conduct. The very idea of being under the wrath of God is so exceedingly repulsive to all our feelings that it is admitted with extreme reluctance and not until the evidence of the fact can no longer be resisted. If we own that our condition is bad, we suppose it might be worse. Whatever may be our blemishes, we fancy they are more than made up by our virtues. The depravity of the heart blinds the understanding so that we call evil good and good evil, light, darkness, and darkness light. We are naturally averse to self-examination, and when we attempt it, we are disposed to judge ourselves by a wrong standard. Many things are taken for evidences of piety which are not such in reality. While we carefully seize upon everything which presents itself in our favor, our deficiencies are overlooked or regarded as of little moment. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Number two. We are not only liable to self-deception from the depravity of the heart. Satan, too, exerts a powerful influence in promoting the same object. As a roaring lion, he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And it is evident that the means which he employs to accomplish his designs are characterized by the profoundest artifice. Hence we read of his wiles, his snare, his devices. He blinds the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Second Corinthians 4.4 4. He even transforms himself into an angel of light, representing truth as error, and error as truth, holiness as sin, and sin as holiness. He has temptations adapted to every mind and to every condition. If one means fail, he can employ another. If one form of self-deception will not answer his purpose, a thousand more are at hand. First of all, perhaps, he diverts the attention of the sinner altogether from the subject of religion, prejudices him against its claims, occupies him with the world, or tempts him to presume on future repentance. But if, in spite of such efforts, conscience becomes alarmed, the next step may be to lead the inquirer to the indulgence of a false hope. By suggesting some promise of the gospel, by misrepresenting the character of God, or by counterfeiting the evidences of piety, the great adversary often succeeds in quieting every fear and lulling the soul into a sleep, more profound than that from which it has been aroused. He taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Matthew twelve forty five. Number three. The danger of self-deception will also appear from the frequent distinction which the Bible makes between true and false religion. Is there a love which is a fulfilling of the law? There is also a love entirely selfish, in which in times of temptation waxes cold. 
Is there a godly sorrow which worketh repentance unto salvation? There is also a sorrow of the world which worketh death. Is there a faith which worketh by love and overcometh the world? There is also a faith dead and inoperative. Is there a filial fear which is the beginning of wisdom? There is also a slavish fear which often agitates the wicked on earth and which will be to them a source of torment forever. It is said of the Samaritans that they feared the Lord and served their own God. 2 Kings 17.33 Zephaniah 1.5 Is there a submission which results from enlightened views of the divine government and a cordial approbation of the divine dispensations? There is also a submission feigned and forced. Through the greatness of thy power, says the psalmist, shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. Psalm 66.3 Is there a good hope through grace which purifieth the heart, and proves as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast? There is also a hope which maketh ashamed, the hope of the hypocrite, which shall be as a giving up of the ghost. Is there a joy which is sown for the righteous and which is the fruit of the Spirit? There is also the joy of the stony ground hearers, who, having no root in them, soon wither under the influence of persecution and trial. Thus it appears that every Christian grace has its counterfeits. The question, then, is not simply whether we have love to God, sorrow for sin, faith in Christ, submission, fear, hope, and joy, but what is the nature of these exercises? Are they such as God requires, such as are peculiar to the saints, such as will be approved in the great day of final retribution? Number four, the admonitions and warnings of the Bible afford another evidence of the danger of self-deception. Let no man deceive himself, 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let every man prove his own work, Galatians 6.4. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own self, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves, James 1.22. Let us fear, lest a promise be left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it, Hebrews 4.1 looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, Hebrews 12.15. Now consider to whom these injunctions were originally directed. They were addressed to professors of religion who had exhibited credible evidence of piety and who had endured the severest trials in their adherence to the truth. And if such needed to be cautioned against self-delusion, then let none at the present day flatter themselves that they are secure. The highest attainments in the divine life are consistent with the closest self-examination and the most incessant watchfulness over our own hearts. While we stand, we have need to take heed lest we fall. Search me, said the psalmist, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I keep under my body, says Paul, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Number 5. The Scriptures not only teach us that men may be deceived, but 
that many actually are deceived. Instances of this kind abound in the Word of God for the instruction and warning of others in every subsequent age. We read of those who, when they hear the words of the curse, bless themselves in their hearts, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart. Deuteronomy 29.19 of those who flatter themselves in their own eyes until their iniquity be found to be hateful. Psalm 36, too, of those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not washed from their filthiness. Proverbs 30, verse 12. Of those who cry peace and safety when sudden destruction awaits them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. Of those who say that they are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Revelation 3.17 As a nation, the Jews in the days of Christ were under the influence of the most fatal self-delusion. While they boasted of their pious ancestry and of their distinguished privileges and regarded themselves as the exclusive objects of divine favor, the Savior, who saw through every disguise, declared that the love of God was not in them. John 5.42 Even in the Christian church there were some who, while they professed to know God and works denied Him, who called themselves the friends of Christ but walked as the enemies of his cross, who maintains a form of godliness, but denied its power. What characters are denoted by the five foolish virgins, but members of the visible church, bearing indeed the lamp of profession, but utterly void of divine grace? Who is a man without a wedding garment, but one who finds his way within the pale of the church, and takes his place at the communion table, and yet instead of being clothed with a garment of salvation, appears in the filthy rags of his own righteousness. Among the twelve apostles there was a traitor. Among the thousands numbered as converts during the great revival which commenced on the day of Pentecost, there were an Ananias and a Sapphira. And if cases of self-deception existed in the primitive church to which none were admitted who did not afford credible evidence of evangelical repentance and faith, what must be the state of a church where a profession of vital godliness is not regarded as essential to membership? If the tares grew among the wheat when special pains were taken to prevent their introduction, what may we not look for where the two are knowingly mingled together? Notwithstanding the utmost precaution in the reception of persons to sealing ordinances, individuals will still creep in unawares, who instead of belonging to the household of faith, belong to the world. In almost every church, however, pure, are perhaps some whom a deceived heart hath turned aside. Such professors may maintain a good and regular standing for years. Their attendance on the ordinances of God's house may be constant and punctual, and their piety beyond all suspicion, and yet when weighed in the balance, they may be found wanting. Lay rich men, according to his own testimony, had not only been a member of the church, but had also entered upon the Christian ministry before he became savingly acquainted with the truth as it is in Jesus. Religious biography furnishes us with numerous instances in which persons have experienced great changes in their views and feelings while they have remained ignorant of that one great change which the scriptures declare to be essential to salvation. Jonathan Edwards, when a small boy, 
was greatly excited about his salvation, had very clear views of his lost and guilty state, wept and prayed much with deep feeling, obtained, as he thought, pardon for his sins, and felt very happy and joyful afterwards. For a time he loved to pray and talk about religion, and he united with other boys and held a youth's prayer meeting. After a while all these feelings left him, and he became a thoughtless, stupid young man. Again he was awakened, deeply convicted for sin, and again obtained peace and joy, but he describes the second experience as essentially different from the first and that he obtained scriptural views of Christ as his justifying righteousness, and his views of God and holiness were entirely different. This double conversion, so to speak, qualified him with superior light in the scriptures to write with uncommon discrimination upon religious experience. Edwards on the Religious Affections is a book that should be read carefully and frequently by professors of religion. By the way, I have narrated that work for the Chapel Library. In nine tapes. David Brainerd passed through a similar false experience and really thought he had religion, but afterwards learned his mistake and became truly converted and lived a life of imminent piety and spirituality till his death. The late Andrew Fuller, one of the most distinguished theological writers of the age, was a subject of conviction of sin from childhood. He was often much affected while thinking upon the doctrines of Christianity. At the age of thirteen years, he rested upon a false hope from having these words suddenly impressed upon his mind. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6.15 This sealed him with joy and transport, and he seemed to use his own languages in a new world. It appeared to me I hated all my sins and was resolved to forsake them, he wrote. But notwithstanding all this, in a few days he cast off serious impressions and went headlong into sin, and for a time he used to think himself a backsliding Christian, though in a little time, as he says, his conscience almost became seared. He was afterwards truly converted. Here is a spot where hundreds fail. They take up with a conversion that falls infinitely short of saving faith in Jesus Christ, and when they lose their religious impressions and live habitually in the neglect of secret and family prayer and other religious duties, they lay the flattering unction to their consciences that they are backsliding saints and that God will bring them back in his own good time. Number six, what must tend to impress our minds still more deeply with the danger of self-deception is the fact that multitudes not only live but die deceived. A deathbed has indeed been called a detector of the heart. Thus it is no doubt proved in numerous instances. The confidence which the deceived have cherished in health has utterly failed on the near approach of eternity. What is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he hath gained, when God taketh away his soul... Job 27.8 We cannot, however, determine the safety of a person by the manner of his death. If men may live deceived, no reason can be given why they may not die deceived. It is recorded of the wicked that there are no bands in their death. The former character of many who have departed this life in peace furnishes fearful evidence that even in the honest hour of dissolution men may cling to a hope which will at last prove like the spider's web. 
while Bunyan represents Christian and hopeful as entering upon the river of death with hesitation and fear, the case of ignorance, a character by no means rare, is described in the following affecting language. Now while I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance come up to the riverside. But he soon got over, and without half the difficulty which the other two men met with. For it had happened that there was then in the place one vain hope, a ferryman, that with his boat helped him over. So he, as the others I saw, did ascend the hill to come up to the gate, only he came alone, neither did any meet him with the least encouragement. When he was come up to the gate, he looked up to the writing that was above, and then began to knock, supposing that entrance should have been quickly administered to him, but he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, Whence came you, and what would you have? He answered, I have ate and drank in the presence of the king, and he is taught in our streets. Then they asked him for his certificate that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his bosom for one and found none. Then said they, Have you none? But the man answered never a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian and Hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and have him away. Then they took him up and carried him through the air to the door that I saw in the side of the hill and put him in there. Then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gate of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. Self-Deception Chapter 3 The Consequences of Self-Deception Self-deception in religion is a terrific evil. Its disastrous influence both in this world and the next exceeds all description. Nothing can befall us this side eternity which should be more deprecated and against which we should more carefully guard. A false hope is worse than no hope. Whatever distress may attend the latter, the former is by far more the ruinous. Number 1. Self-deception renders all our religious performances vain. With whatever complacency they may be viewed by ourselves or by our fellow men, infinite purity cannot behold them but with abhorrence. If the heart be wrong, all is wrong. Where there is no holy principle, there can be no holy practice. The same works that the Christian performs we may perform, and they may be performed too with the same apparent zeal. But if our motives be impure, they destroy the moral virtue of our deeds, however splendid and opposing to the eye of man, and render them in the view of God nothing but vain oblations. Do we spread forth our hands in prayer? He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Proverbs 28.9 Do we appear in the sanctuary? Who, says God, hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Isaiah 1.12 Do we pay an external respect to the Sabbath? The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even a solemn meeting. Verse 13 Do we afflict ourselves by fasting? 
Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Well, thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord. Isaiah 58, 5 and 6. Do we surround the Lord's table and receive the sacred memorials of the Savior's death? Instead of commemorating his sufferings, we become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Do we give of our substance to feed the poor or to support and extend the gospel? Verily we have our reward, the praise of man, but not the approbation of God. Number two, self-deception also deprives us of the present comforts of religion. It may indeed impart a certain kind of peace. The mind before agitated with fear may become calmed, but to the joy of salvation we shall notwithstanding remark strangers. Religion so far from proving a pleasure will prove a task. Its duties will be observed not because they are deemed desirable in themselves, but only as a means for the attainment of some selfish end. Number three, self-deception will prevent us from deriving any benefit from the means of grace. Regarding our condition as already safe, we shall of course see no ground for alarm. Whatever denunciations the Bible may utter against the impenitent, those denunciations will be lost upon us. Ministers may preach with the utmost fidelity, warning every man with tears, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with all long-suffering and doctrine. But the gospel, instead of becoming to us a savor of life unto life, will become the savor of death unto death. Do they urge their hearers to flee from the wrath to come? According to our apprehension, we have already been saved from that wrath. Do they point to the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world? We have already looked to Him as our Savior. Do they portray the glories of heaven and call upon us to lay hold on eternal life? Heaven is already made sure. Do they caution us against self-delusions? Others may be deceived, but as it respects ourselves, we cannot be mistaken. It is comparatively easy to shake the hopes of some real Christians, while the same truths which disturb them leave the hypocrite unmoved. While some weak, trembling believer may lay this little volume aside, writing bitter things against himself, the very class of persons for whose benefit it is more immediately intended may read his pages without one feeling of distrust or apprehension. Number four. The dreadfulness of self-deception will further appear when we reflect that in eternity it will be too late to rectify the mistake. Then indeed it will be manifest. A view of the holy character of God and of the spirituality of His law will at once dissipate every delusion. The heart will appear without a covering and every form of self-delusion will vanish forever. But there will be no remedy. Probation has closed. The character is formed and the record of our lives sealed up for eternity. No patron, intercessor none, now past the sweet, the clement, mediatorial hour. For guilt, no plea. To pain, no pause, no bound. Inexorable all. 
and all extreme. Number five, self-deception will also aggravate our future misery. The more confident our hopes of future happiness are here, the more bitter will be the pain of disappointment hereafter. How awful to go to the gate of heaven, expecting admission, and then meet the sentence, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Imagination can form but little conception of the anguish which must follow this exclusion. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth says Jesus, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself thrust out. Luke thirteen twenty seven and 28. Picture to yourself the deceived professor on his deathbed. He fears no evil. Even to the last he retains his confidence and remains calm. He dies, it may be exulting in hope. But where is he? Instead of finding himself in heaven, he is in hell. Instead of mingling with the spirits of the blessed, he is associated with the lost. Instead of swelling the note of redemption to the Lamb, he mourns in despair that the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and he is not saved. Oh, the darkness that must gather around the spirit when the light of hope is thus suddenly and forever extinguished. The hope of the hypocrite, it is said, shall be as the giving up of the ghost, like the separation of the soul from the body, is certain and as dreadful. His hope shall be cut off, and his trust shall be as a spider's web. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. Job 8, 14 and 15 The fabric which he had all his life been rearing will fall, and great indeed will be the fall. Matthew seven twenty seven. To sink into hell from the table of the Lord? Oh, what a terrible fall! They that perished from Sodom and Gomorrah, though their punishment will be intolerable, will be but slightly punished in comparison with you, a lost communicant. Ones that went to hell with the bread and wine, the memorials of a dying Savior, as it were, in his mouth. Oh, methinks such an one must be the most shocking sight in the infernal regions. How will lost angels and lost heathens wonder and stare at you as a horrible phenomenon, a dreadful curiosity? How will they upbraid you? How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou become like one of us? Chapter 4 Self-deception liable to prove permanent. They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. This solemn charge was brought against professors of religion, notwithstanding the variety of means which had been employed to convince them of their danger and lead them to repentance, they continued to cleave to their delusions and prove utterly incorrigible. There is an awful probability that the deceived professor of religion will remain deceived until probation closes and all opportunity of salvation ceases forever. All things indeed are possible with God. He can work when, where, and upon whom he please. So far, however, as we are acquainted with the operations of his grace, they are but seldom extended to those who have taken up with a false profession and hope.
The scriptures speak of the conversion of thousands, but I do not recollect that they speak of the conversion of one in the Christian church who has been deceived with a spurious piety. I believe, says Dr. Griffin, there is no instance recorded in the Bible of a sinner's being rescued from a false hope unless it was founded in the belief of a false religion. In the short period which I have had to make my observations, I recollect very few instances of persons apparently renewed after they had settled down for years under a false hope, and with that hope had joined the church. Indeed, I remember but one. We read of tares, we read of foolish virgins, but we never read of their conversion. Speaking of those who imagine themselves to be converted when they are not, Jonathan Edwards remarks that he had scarcely known the instance of such an one in his life that had been undeceived. The confident hope of the hypocrite, he says, is in one sense much more immovable than truly gracious assurance. The conversion of a false professor can be effected only by destroying his present confidence. But how reluctantly does he yield that confidence, especially where it has been long cherished and strengthened? In times of special revival, when God searches Jerusalem with candles, sinners in Zion often become afraid. But in the ordinary state of feeling which prevails in the church... There is but little probability that they will renounce their hopes and become the subjects of renewing grace. Number 1. The manner in which the scriptures speak of the sense of security created by a false hope is full of instruction and warning. What, says Job, is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained, when God taketh away his soul? Job 27.8 here the hypocrite's hope is represented as continuing until death, as though nothing but the separation of the soul from the body could separate him from his imagined security. The scriptures speak of such as flatter themselves in their own eyes until their iniquity be found to be hateful, hateful either in their conversion or perdition, Psalm 36.2. They, moreover, teach us that men may continue the cry, peace and safety, until sudden destruction come upon them. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3. Those who built on the sand are described as secure until the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and their edifice was utterly demolished. Matthew 7, 27. The foolish virgins appeared as well satisfied with their condition as the wise. Nothing but the unexpected cry... Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Disturb their repose and convince them of their folly. Matthew 25, number 2. Another consideration which renders it probable that deceived professors will remain deceived is the fact that their morality blinds them to their condition. No evangelical church can tolerate immorality in its members. As a mortal life is regarded indispensable to their admission, so it is also requisite to their continuance. When churches become so corrupt as knowingly to receive and retain in fellowship those whose conduct is openly vicious, they can hardly be acknowledged as churches of Christ. Now the fact that professors of religion are usually distinguished for the correctness of their conduct presents a strong reason why those who are deceived may remain under that deception. 
press upon the profligate the claims of the gospel, and he will perhaps admit that he is not what he ought to be. But speak to an unconverted church member on the subject, and he can effectually fortify himself against your appeals by reference to his exemplary deportment. The power of this delusion is usually strengthened where the individual once led an abandoned life and afterwards became reformed. How easy is it to mistake a change of conduct for a change of character? How prone are we to suppose that because we have lopped off some of the branches, we have struck at the root itself? Number three. Again, their connection with a visible church tends also to promote the confidence of the deceived. Previous to this connection, regarding themselves as yet of the world, they may have often felt seriously alarmed. They saw others approaching the sacramental supper while they were excluded, and the apprehension would sometimes arise that they might never sit down at the merry supper of the Lamb. But their names are now enrolled among the people of God, and it is assumed that those names must be recorded in the book of life. They have fled to the temple and grasped the horns of the altar and feel themselves consequently to be secure. The shield of their profession effectually wards off every arrow of conviction. The shafts of divine justice fall harmless at their feet. Others may writhe under the power of truth, but they are invulnerable. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, say they are we. Number four, their observance of the external duties of religion increase their sense of security. Perhaps they are distinguished not only for their regular appearance in the sanctuary on the Sabbath, but also for their attendance at the lecture and prayer meeting during the week. It is possible, too, that they may have established an altar in their families and may maintain a form of devotion in the closet. They may also be among the first to patronize the benevolent objects of the day and to take an active part in everything pertaining to the external prosperity of the church. Now the tendency of all these observances, where there is a destruction of love to God or true piety, is to quiet conscience and fill the mind with self-complacency. When a man engages in such things with a proper spirit, his moral sensibility, instead of being diminished, is increased. But where they are attended to with a different spirit, they usually result in increased hardness of heart and become as opiates to the soul. The sin of thus trifling with sacred truths and duties is one of peculiar aggravation, and on that account is visited with spiritual judgments. Be not mockers, says God, lest your bands be made strong. The more an unregenerate professor is put forward in the affairs of the church, the more familiar he becomes with divine truth, and the more he abounds in external observances, the more not unfrequently is his danger enhanced and the difficulties in the way of his conversion multiplied. Number five, the similarity between true and false experience is another circumstance by which a delusive hope is strengthened. A Christian relates the dealings of God with his soul. He speaks of his sense of sin and his desert of condemnation. He speaks of the anguish which took hold on his spirit when the law laid upon him its claims and thundered against him its anathemas. He speaks of his peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. A false convert, in listening to the relation, imagines that he discerns a similarity between his own exercises and those of the believer. He too has been the subject of fear and of hope, of sorrow and of joy. He too has trembled in view of the coming wrath, and as he supposes fled to Christ as his refuge, 
There is not a single exercise of grace which may not have its counterfeit. Men will speak in affecting terms of the delusion of the moralist and the Pharisee, and dream not of danger in their own case. They count themselves the friends of vital piety in the subjects of evangelical experience, and should their neglect of duty or their want of devotedness to Christ excite suspicion that all is not right, reference to the circumstances of their supposed conversion will remove their apprehensions and restore their wanted confidence. To doubt the genuineness of their conversion, they think an act of unbelief no less dishonorable to God than injurious to themselves. Number six, the favorable opinion which others entertain of their piety also promotes their security. Though dead in trespasses and sins, they have a name to live. Their standing in the church is good and regular. They are regarded as Christians and treated as such. Perhaps their experience is not only judged to be satisfactory, but striking, and their charitable contributions and labors may be referred to as examples worthy of imitation. Why then should they doubt? Would they be regarded as Christians by men of such wisdom and piety if they had no claim to the Christian character? Number 7. Further, they see others in the church live just as they live. Should their inconsistencies occasionally leave them to doubt their conversion, they find others whose conduct is in accordance with their own or whose piety is even far more dubious. All say they have their imperfections and we have ours. The best of men are but men at best. Let him who is without sin cast a first stone. They are most keen to discern the Christian's blemishes, but alas, they entirely overlook his humiliation. Number 8. Perhaps they have also seen some who live as they live, die at last in peace. The hopes of the self-deceived, as we have already remarked, often remain firm even in death. Their end is calm and peaceful, and their character after their decease becomes a subject of unqualified eulogy. But if those who exhibited so little evidence of piety, reasons the deceived professor, can die thus, why then should I give myself any uneasiness? Could there be such peace where there is no piety? Could death have so little terror and be welcomed even with joy? Number 9. A false hope meets with no disturbance from the adversary. Why should he disturb it? It is the most effectual means of accomplishing his designs. The true Christian he will molest. If he cannot destroy his soul, he will, if possible, impair his confidence and harass his mind with fear. But the false professor has already fallen into the snare of the devil, and it must be the policy of the great enemy to maintain that sense of security already inspired. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Luke 11.21 Number 10. There is also a want of faithfulness in professors of religion toward each other. We would by no means encourage a spirit of censoriousness. Charity thinketh no evil. It never imputes evil where no evil appears, but rather inclines us to put the most favorable construction upon the conduct of our fellow beings. Still, charity is neither blind nor indifferent. It watches with the same solicitude over the interests of others as over our own. In meekness, says the apostle, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Second Timothy 2, 25 and 26 
Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. James 5:19 and 20. Yet how sadly is this duty neglected! How often do we entertain serious doubts of the piety of those with whom we are conversant, while we have not the benevolence to express to them our fears, or to put forth any effort for their conversion? We make our remarks about their cases to others, but have no courage to speak to the individuals themselves. The tendency of this neglect is to render the confidence of the unrenewed professor more confirmed. It is indirectly, at least, healing the hurt slightly, crying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Number 11. The fact that so many means have already been employed without success to destroy the hopes of the deceived renders it highly probable that those hopes will be cherished to the last. Think of the warnings addressed to them from the Bible. Think of the appeals made to them from the pulpit. Think of the kind and repeated wooings of the Spirit. Think of the solemn scenes of religious interest through which they may have been permitted to pass, and yet all has failed to produce any salutary impression. Truth and all its light and power has been presented. The nature of regeneration has been clearly described, and they have been urged with melting tenderness to give all diligence to make their calling and election sure. Still, they hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. The hopes of others, once in the same state of deception with themselves, have been shaken and abandoned, but their hearts have remained unmoved, their security and peace undisturbed. Chapter 5 The Remedy for Self-Deception Liable as self-deception is to prove permanent, it may be detected. There is a remedy for the evil which, when applied in time, has proved effectual. That remedy is self-examination. The mistakes which are made in religion may all be traced to the neglect of this duty. Could men but be persuaded to search their hearts by the light of divine truth and under the teachings of the Holy Spirit, how many hopes now firm would at once be shaken and be exchanged for better ones? Let every man prove his own work. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. The Bible is a plain book and was written for minds of every order, for the unlearned as well as the learned. So clearly has it revealed the way of salvation that even the way-fearing men, though full, shall not err therein. In a matter of such infinite moment, it might be supposed that the Holy Spirit would be explicit. It would be a reflection both on his wisdom and benevolence to say that he is not to be understood. Self-deception is not owing to anything mysterious or ambiguous in the evidences of piety themselves, but to the lack of proper attention to those evidences and their application to our individual cases. Men may and ought to know their true character. We may have something of the same consciousness of love to God, of repentance toward God, of faith in God, or of obedience to God as we have of these exercises in reference to any human being. If the child may know that he loves his parents, that he respects their authority, that he trusts in their veracity, and that he is grieved for any offense committed against them, why may not the Christian know that his heart is right with God? 
Lord said, Peter, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Hezekiah could appeal to God that he had walked before him in truth and with a perfect heart, and had done that which was good in his sight. Isaiah 38.3 We know, says John, that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Number 1 in entering upon the investigation of our spiritual state, it is of the highest importance that we place before us a proper standard of piety. The standard by which we are to try ourselves is not the suggestions of our own hearts. These are deceitful above all things, and prone to lead us astray. Not the sentiments and conduct of our fellow men. These are often in direct opposition to the mind and will of God. Not the experience of other professors, for that experience like our own may be spurious. And though all true Christians are born of the same spirit, the operations of that spirit are greatly diversified. The proper test of piety as well as of truth is the Bible. This is the man of our counsel and the guide of our life, the law and the testimony to which all our feelings and actions must be referred and by which they must be tried. It is by this we are to be judged at the last day, and by this we should now prove the reality of our piety. Nothing is religion that will not bear the application of this test. Let the Bible then be our only rule of faith, of experience, and of practice. Let the question be settled, what is the religion which God demands and which he will finally own? Should we adopt a different standard, we may fall into the most serious mistakes. And when our state calls for alarm, it may be regarded with complacency. Our model must be the perfect example of him whose disciples we profess to be, and who has required us to walk even as he walked. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Number 2. Not only should we fix upon a proper standard, but also endeavor to form clear conceptions of the evidences of piety. Without this, we shall be liable either to the extreme of presumption or despondency. While some will cry peace when there is no peace, others overlooking the exercises of a renewed heart will be held in perpetual bondage to their doubts and fears. Great care should be taken to ascertain what the scriptures insist on as essential to Christian character. It is by these points, and not by such as are merely circumstantial, that we are to determine the genuineness of our piety. There are some who place great dependence upon the pungency of their convictions, the ecstasy of their joys, remarkable dreams sudden impulses, the unexpected application of some scripture promise, or the fact that they can refer to the particular moment in place of their supposed conversion. None of these things, however, constitute the distinguishing marks of grace. Instead, therefore, of directing our minds to those circumstances which may be as marked in the cases of the self-deceived as in the cases of true believers, our inquiries should relate to those traits of character which are the invariable fruits of the Spirit and which are common to all the subjects of His saving influence. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.